It's December 30th, 2014, and this is episode 174. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Stephanie here with another science report. We ran an interview a little while ago with Kevin McKernan about sort of open source science and his project related to Ebola. That interview was so popular and got such a great reception that I thought it would be great to do another interview in sort of the Let's Talk Bitcoin science series. And this one's cool. I think you're going to love it too. I'm speaking today with Isaac Yonemoto. He is a cancer researcher and he's not just any cancer researcher. He basically created a project to fund the development of an open source drug for cancer. And it's going to be called Satoshi Mycin, named after, of course, Satoshi Nakamoto. And there's a lot more to his story. But first of all, Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks. I'm excited to chat about this. The topic of open source science is really interesting to our listeners, but this does also relate to Bitcoin as well. So we're going to tie it all together. Tell me a little bit about your background as a scientist. How did you first get interested in this project that you ended up taking and spinning off into the open source drug that you're currently working on? Sure. It's actually been kind of an interesting path. I never really wanted to do any sort of oncology type research. So that's any sort of cancer drug or cancer type research. My PhD work, which was over the course of six years, was actually in the field of diabetes. So I was studying a little bit more of the biology and the chemistry of how that happens and not necessarily looking towards any sort of cure or drug or anything like that. As it turns out, after my PhD, I was supposed to go to Wales for a job and my visa was denied. And I wound up at the University of Maryland just accepting a job off of Craigslist. And that was a project to develop an anti-cancer drug. You basically didn't intend to be a cancer researcher. You kind of just stumbled into this. And it's so often like that in science. Like I can really relate to that. I have a PhD too in biochemistry. My career in science took some turns like that too. Like I actually wanted to study metabolism and obesity and diabetes, kind of like what you were working on before. But I ended up more in the cholesterol field and studying Alzheimer's disease and cholesterol metabolism in the brain. It's just kind of serendipitous sometimes how it happens. And you really have to know about a lot of different areas of science because you can go down these avenues that you didn't expect. And then suddenly you're in a whole new area (laughs) that you might be unfamiliar with. That's actually kind of interesting, too, because in the lab where I was working on diabetes, I was actually the only person working on diabetes and most of the people were working on Alzheimer's. And actually, uh, one of the projects was about cholesterol and Alzheimer's as well. So (laughs) there's a huge connection there for sure. One of the reasons that I got out of it was because I didn't I wasn't feeling very motivated by the idea that I didn't feel like I was moving forward towards a, a cure. In science, the incentives to make uh, cures and to, to actually cure these diseases are not necessarily there. Like they become twisted. And for a lot of scientists, it becomes about getting more grants and getting more money from the government because that's who gives out all the grants. 
than actually doing useful, helpful research that leads to cures. Was that your experience too? Well, so I think in science, fundamentally, there's kind of this tension. We always like to say that scientists are motivated by the desire to learn things and discover new things. And for sure, I mean, that's, I mean, that's how I am myself. But that is kind of an inward-looking goal. It's a very solipsistic pursuit. It's, you're not necessarily <laughs> doing anything that's actually helping somebody else. The irony is that this is not the way that it's sold in the public, right? So in the public, we say we need basic science because it's good for society. But really, when a scientist pursues basic science, because the connection to how it will help society is, is not clear, and it may take hundreds of years, if even, it is kind of quite the opposite. Like, basic science is, is a very, I think, an antisocial pursuit. That was, like, exactly how I felt. And I was frustrated by that. And I imagine people who are maybe donating to, like, private charities or some foundations that fund medical research... They think that they're trying to get a cure, but oftentimes the motivation of the scientists are not to find a cure. I even heard scientists when I was working in science talk about how they found it really annoying. They didn't like the pressure from families of these kids that had these diseases, the pressure to find a cure when they just wanted to do basic research and understand what was going on in the cell because it was an interesting problem to them. Right. And to be fair, you know, we do need to do some basic science in general to sort of provide a solid foundation for it. I think that we have this system where in science, the way things are, there might be a little bit of disconnect between the way things are and the way they're sold to society. By contrast, we'll typically say that uh, drug development is, you know, this evil pharmaceutical companies, you know, trying to make a buck. To be sure, I think that pharmaceutical companies do shady things, but contrary to what is sold in the common discourse, I think that they're probably doing a little bit better than, than we give them credit for. Yeah, well, at least they have the profit motive to incentivize them to create drugs that will treat diseases and not just do research for the sake of understanding interesting scientific problems, right? right. Like, they've at least got that going for them. The pharmaceutical companies say what you want about them, but they're just a symptom of the way things are set up in society because they've got this patent system. They've got intellectual property, so-called, that enables them to patent these drugs and charge an arm and a leg for them. And they spend as much money on marketing as they do on research and development, and actually more as far as I understand it. That data is out there about the budgets of various pharma companies, and they spend about as much on marketing as they do on R&D. A lot of the cost of drugs is just coming from the fact that the pharma companies are protected as far as what they can charge, you know, via the intellectual property system that decreases patients' access to drugs. Every time the patent expires, it gives them an incentive to alter the drug a little bit, like the formulation or change a little chemical group here and there, and then put out a new drug that they can then patent, and it'll be on, on patent for another 20 years. That creates perverse incentives too, but they're just responding to the incentives that they get. They're just surviving in the environment. It's almost like if we think about it in an evolutionary sense, you know, they've got these selective pressures that are kind of incentivizing them to go down that path. So we may think about it as evil, but really it's the government who's setting a lot of these policies that are driving them in that direction. Right, exactly. They're basically just operating in the system that they are, they're given. I think it's certainly possible to, to do things in a different way. 
voluntarily, even though the system exists. And, you know, it is a little bit harder. But that's exactly what you're doing with your project right now, right? Right, right, exactly. And I certainly have a lot of fears that, you know, it may not succeed because the barriers to entry are simply too high because of the policies that exist. But that's no reason to not try. And, and, you know, I'm optimistic that this compound will be kick-ass enough that it will, that those barriers won't matter. It's always that way in science. There's always so much uncertainty. Like you don't, often really know where you're going, <laughs> you know, and it's just like you, you don't know what the results are going to be, but you have to kind of try and find out. And that's exciting, but it's also scary too, because you want to be able to generate some kind of a business plan and be able to know what's going to happen if you're thinking about it. As far as if you're thinking about achieving a certain goal, you want to have some predictability there. It's also a tricky marketing issue because, you know, I, I, you know, this is something that I've wrestled with throughout my whole campaign. Like, you know, I do need to sort of hedge and make sure people understand that this is not necessarily going to all work out, that there's always some problems with science that can crop up and just destroy things at any moment. But I also have to project, you know, optimism, which is something that I do believe. And, you know, so finding that right balance has always been, has been tricky for me as a individually. I want to let you finish your story about how you ended up getting onto this project. So you're just basically saying that your visa got denied. You wanted to go to Wales for a project, but then your visa got denied, which that's an interesting turn of events. But what happened after that? So I started working at this at the University of Maryland, um, basically on a lark off of a job that um, I had gotten off of Craigslist of all places, which is a very unusual place to get a job if you're a scientist. Yes. It was on, on this project where um, my boss, Barbara, had designed a drug based off of an old drug candidate from the 1970s that was discovered in Siberia. This is actually kind of an interesting story because even in the 70s, the Soviet Union was kind of um, still recovering from Lysenkoism, which was this kind of ideologically motivated scientific philosophy. And it was... What is that? I've never heard of Oh, they they had these theories that were... Basically, the idea was that evolution was a bourgeois model. This guy... Trofim Lysenko came up with this other alternative theory of how organisms develop, and it was completely nuts. But, <laughs> but as a result, like a lot of Soviet biology was very backwards until maybe about the 70s. The parts of where Soviet science was good was like Siberia, because it was out of sight, out of mind. So the authorities kind of just let the scientists over there do whatever they wanted. There was actually a very interesting long-term evolution experiment in Siberian foxes that occurred out there. It kind of made press last year. They basically evolved foxes to become like dogs. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, I think a lot of people, that reached a lot of people. Because, you know, because, because it's interesting. Cute. Everybody likes dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because they're cute. Um, <laughs> right. But along the same lines, I mean, this, this uh, anti-cancer research was done you know, in, in, in sort of the late 70s, early 80s and was basically enabled by sort of the more liberal, liberated scientific environment of Siberia. The development of that, that drug was abandoned because it was found to be cardiotoxic. We're not 100% to the heart. toxic to the heart. We're not 100% sure why it is, but we kind of have some ideas. Based on that, she redesigned the molecule just by deleting an oxygen atom from the molecule. And she devised a way to make this compound using the same bacteria that normally would make 
the toxic compound. This is a compound that comes from soil bacteria that live in Siberia. Is right. that right? That's right. Um, cool. And, okay. it, and, and so why do soil bacteria? So actually, it turns out that a lot of anti-cancer and antibiotics come from soil bacteria. It's probably because they're competing with their neighbors and, and they're certain they have a very bizarre life cycle. In fact, for hundreds of years, they were confused for being um, fungi instead of bacteria. There are certain parts of their life cycle where they're extremely fragile. And so to protect themselves, they basically fumigate themselves with toxic compounds. Those tend to be useful for all sorts of conditions, uh, ranging from like rheumatoid arthritis to safe uh, anti-insect pesticides. Wow. These defense mechanisms that bacteria and fungi and other soil organisms have evolved end up being useful in humans. Because if we want to kill some of our bad bacteria, like if we've got an infection, we could go to the arms race between bacteria themselves and employ some of those compounds to help with that, for, for example. Right. So that's where this compound comes from, except we had to change it so that it wasn't cardiotoxic. So over the course of the year, I was basically employed to validate and scale up and produce a lot of this and send it out for testing, which is what I did. We sent it out for testing, got amazing results, and then my boss quit. So the project got abandoned. I also was at that point in San Diego, back in San Diego, uh, in a new job um, since I had completed what I was basically contracted to do. After she left, I started talking to her and we were discussing, well, you know, what's going to happen to this project? She works for the NIH now and she's in charge of basically the part of the NIH that funds these sorts of projects. So it's a conflict of interest for her to come back and sort of be in charge of funding her own project, basically, right? Certainly shady things happen in the government from time to time, but I understand her desire to not be embroiled in such a thing. The barrier to restarting it under the NIH is extremely high. I don't particularly care that much for um, government subsidies to science. It happens, and sometimes you have to do it, but I, I don't care for it. And so I said, hey, you know, maybe I should start my own nonprofit to continue the development of this drug. Now, as it turns out, I'm also not a big fan of patents. And so this is kind of a perfect opportunity to, I mean, you know, if you dislike patents and are capable as a biologist, you, there's not, you don't really have too many options. Um, and here we had a reasonably good drug candidate just fall into my lap. Right place, right time. Wouldn't have been there if I had been in Wales. So I said, well, let's do this. How did you find out about Bitcoin? Like, how does that tie into the story? Based on my political bent, been uh, upset about things like the Federal Reserve. And, and so I'm actually surprised that I didn't get into Bitcoin earlier than I actually did. I just started thinking about it more and more. And then, you know, after having heard, heard about it, I heard about it for like a, a year or so. And then, and then finally, finally, I just said, okay, I need, to, I need to think about this a little bit more. And then I jumped in. What was the time frame on that? January of 2013 is when I, it was when Coinbase first came out. That was when I, I, I decided that this was something that I needed to take a look at. But you had been hearing about it for a year before that? A year, year and a half before that even. Sounds like you were aware of it pretty early. You just heard about it through kind of libertarian-ish channels, um, would you say? Actually more sort of the tech channels. 
I like to call myself a recreational computer programmer. And then when I did that publicly, people were like, what the heck does that mean? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, obviously I don't do computer programming all that much for my main job or for my jobs to date, which have been science related. I was very lucky as a child. I went to a school where they taught me how to type at first grade. And then as soon as I learned how to type, they had us programming. So I've been programming for a very long time. I've done stuff like science fair projects. I've coded a couple of scripts here and there for legitimate work. have participated in a couple of bioinformatics contests just on a lark. Done a little bit of web development. I programmed the Bitcoin interface for my nonprofit by myself. I mean, basically, it just, it just hooked up to the Coinbase system. But, you know, there's... It was a little bit of figuring out how to do that. Like a true scientist, you're a multi-talented, multifaceted person. (laughs) You've got lots of different interests, and one thing cannot keep you busy. I I understand this to the nth degree. (laughs) I very much relate to that. (laughs) One of those minds that just keeps keeps on thinking all the time. (laughs) So, yeah, I I heard about it more through the tech side, because I think that was kind of around when it was just starting to gain traction in sort of the more liberty-oriented community especially because it became more accessible because of innovations like Coinbase. Yeah, and that was right around the time when the Bitcoin vending machines were starting to come out, like these guys from Lamasu, like they were in the winter of 2013. They were just coming out with those first machines where you could buy Bitcoins at an event by feeding your fiats into this little machines. <laughs> right, right. So another pro- aspect of what really excites me about Bitcoin, so I mean... I think personally, I mean, I I don't have any direct evidence for this, but it's my belief that sort of like an inflationary monetary system really kind of discourages charitability in individuals and also makes it difficult for charitable organizations to basically maintain a war chest for better, for better, for lack of a better term, because you're always having to fight the devaluation of, of, of your currency. So that that's for on the nonprofit side and on the individual side, sort of having to basically keep up on this treadmill of, you know, of decreasing value really kind of saps your energy, makes you more inwardly focused. You know, how do I stay afloat instead of reaching out to help? This is kind of based off of, you know, a couple of psychological studies where I think it's Dan Goleman talks about a study where they had preachers who would uh, be instructed to deliver a sermon on the Good Samaritan so they gave half of their theology students this instruction to give a sermon on the Good Samaritan and half of them on whatever topic they wanted. Then they would have them all go out to something that they had to be at after the sermon. And along the way, they would put sort of a person, an actor that was kind of writhing in pain. And the question is, would the theology student stop and help the person who was en route? Mm. And there was no correlation between whether or not they gave the sermon on the Good Samaritan. And instead, what correlated was where they had to be and how much time did they have to get there. You know, I haven't really looked into the details of that, of that study, and it probably should as a scientist. But <laughs> that resonates with my personal experiences. And, you know, as a result, I've tried to kind of make my life a little bit less hectic, do things like cultivate habits of being, of being charitable which makes you not have to think about it, right? (laughs) Those are kind of the ways that I see uh, uh, fighting the system, but maybe we do need to think about the system as a whole, and that's why I'm I'm interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general, because 
Well, I guess not all of them are necessarily not less inflationary. But it's not a central bank who can inflate at whim, basically. <laughs> right, which is it's the most dangerous thing, I think. I mean, my personal feelings are a little bit more nuanced. I, I personally believe in a difference between like wage-led inflation and central bank-led inflation, which can have you know different effects. In any case, that's the general gist of what I believe. You said you have no experimental evidence, but it sounds like there is experimental evidence for it, at least from a psychological perspective, right. and probably from an economic perspective as well. It sounds like you're basically talking about the Austrian business cycle theory, uh, the Austrian School of Economics, where essentially the idea is that central banks create cheap credit by like lowering interest rates, and then people have no incentive to save they have every incentive to spend and invest and take on more debt because when they pay back the debt, they're going to be paying it back with cheaper dollars. The incentive is to spend rather than to save right now. Right. And then that creates malinvestment where they invest in businesses that never should have had funding in the first place. And then those businesses fail that had the malinvestment. And then the economy contracts and the, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. So that's the Austrian business cycle theory. There's a certain amount of sense there, and certainly just the idea that inflation discourages saving is something that uh, I think a lot of people would agree with, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I have other like less accepted views that, for example, that inflation... I mean, I haven't really felt out sort of the Austrian community as to how much they feel this, but like, I mean, I, I think that inflation is basically a transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich. I feel like Austrians might believe this, but they don't talk about it as much. Yeah, I've heard it stated in a different way, which is that basically when central banks create money, the, the people that that money reaches first are the people who are politically connected. Anyone who's involved with Wall Street or banks or politicians, they are the ones who receive those new dollars first or those new fiats first. Right. They have access to them before the impact of that extra currency hits the economy as a whole. So they, they have access to that newly created money before the effects of inflation are felt through the greater economy. And the last people to have access to those dollars are the poor, basically. Right. <laughs> so they are going to feel the effects of inflation way more. Like by the time that those new dollars reach them, they're not going to be worth as much as when they hit the banks, for instance. Right. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that the pressure to invest basically is a subsidy for Wall Street. And a third mm -hmm. aspect is that... Wait, let's go over that because that's an important point. If in an economy, there's really no way that you can get a good return on investment by just putting keeping money in a savings account or getting a CD or, or whatever, then you're going to think, well, I'm going to have to go with stocks because what else am I going to do? So yeah, it becomes a subsidy for the stock market because people think they kind of have no choice. And it's kind of a rational thing to think that because they're getting all these signals from other places that say they can't get a return on their investment unless they go for stocks. Right. Especially when you're fighting against inflation, there are so very few places where you can... We create these instruments like TIPS, I think it is, Treasury-Insured Treasury Protected Savings or something like that, that are supposed to beat inflation, but do you really trust the numbers that get put out and stuff like that? And the third way is just that it's frequently said that the poor are, are in debt, and so they benefit from the devaluation of the currency. But actually, in my personal experience, I find that the wealthy are higher access to indirect forms of, of, of loans, like um, leveraged investments, 
the rate of interest is so low that the devaluation of the currency does have an effect. Whereas less wealthy individuals, when they are when they are in debt, tend to have like very high interest rates, where you know you're kind of screwed even if the currency does get devalued, and most of those loans are for short term anyways. The system is kind of set up so that you can only get a loan if you really don't need it, and <laughs> you get the best interest rates to the people who have the most money and the ability to kind of pay it back. And yeah, like I could see if the real inflation rate is six or eight percent, let's just say, and the wealthy person is getting a mortgage for two, three percent, something like that, then yeah, they're going to benefit from that because they can pay it back with cheaper dollars in the future. Whereas the poor person's getting some credit card debt that's at an interest rate of 25 or 30%, then they're not going to benefit from it, right? Right. Or, or even worse, like a payday lender who will annualize, which is a fiction because nobody keeps a payday loan for a year. You're not benefiting from inflation in, in those situations. I embrace Bitcoin ideologically, quite frankly, because I think that that's kind of a sounder model of, of, of economics. It doesn't look like that now because it's volatile and new, but time will tell. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is Satoshi. That's S-A-T-O-S-H-I. Satoshi. You've got until the 2nd of January to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. Back to the show. You realize that you had this compound and your former advisor was not able to work on this compound any further or continue this project that you had worked on for that year that you were working in her lab. But the results were really promising. Right. So you decided that your choice was to create a nonprofit and fundraise in order to work on this project. And right. Yeah, and, so, and, and what happened next? So, I mean, with regard to the choice of making a nonprofit. So I do, I do think that at some point a for-profit will need to take this up, especially at the point of manufacture, if it should ever come out to the consumer. But the reason for choosing a nonprofit is because there's, there is definitely a social goal here, right? We published a paper on it, and it has been more than a year since we published the paper. And the way that the patenting system works is that if, if something has been out in the public for a year and has not had a patent executed on it, um, it's no longer patentable. So the patent system actually has been under a, a little bit of an upheaval recently because the United States just moved from a system called first to invent to a system called first to file, which means basically whoever files the patent first 
if they have also invented it, gets the patent instead of whoever proves that I did this first, which actually I think that's a little bit more logical. But um. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that. What it, wasn't there something with Ayn Rand where she said, like, if there are two people and they're like rushing to the patent office to try to patent it first, doesn't matter who invented it first. The person who gets to the patent office first is the one who should get the patent. Like, it kind of proves the ridiculousness of IP in general <laughs> to me. But. So I, I think that was actually Lysander Spooner. Um, no, oh, no, sorry, no, Benjamin Tucker. Sorry. So yeah, Lysander Spooner didn't believe in any kind of patents, as far as I know. <laughs> no, no, it's Spooner was for patents, and Tucker was against patents. And I also think that Ayn Rand was for patents. She was, yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like these debates have existed in the community, especially the libertarian community, for like 150 years, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, still not resolved. <laughs> still, still not resolved. And you know that's good. I mean, I like having I like having this this kind of discourse. Yeah, but it doesn't matter ultimately because it's like, what's the world that we live in? What is the policy that you have to contend with? And you know, if you don't like the policy that you have to contend with, then okay, your choice is is to go outside the system or not do it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, we're making. I think at least in the software side, we've seen how you know, being more open source and kind of not worrying too much about patents has, has, has made a difference. In software in, realm, for sure. Yes. I'm sorry. And yeah, definitely at, in open source software, very popular. You know, at Bitcoin, for example, wouldn't exist if, if not for the open source movement. There is certainly a different level of capital expense required for, say, biology pharmaceuticals. But, you know, the, I, think, I think this is what I'm trying to find out. Like, is that really, everybody says that's a problem. Is that really a problem? And as a scientist, you know, I'm worried about questions of, it's, it's taken as dogma among most biologists that this is not possible. Come on, guys, you know, falsifiability, right? You're a scientist. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how that logic doesn't get applied to certain social conventions, you know? Right. Among people who should know better because they're scientists. Exactly. <laughs> the blind spots sometimes are just amazing. You started this nonprofit and you started fundraising. And the thing that I found really interesting is, I guess you're fundraising to do R&D on this compound. What did you fundraise for? Because your fundraisers are over at this point. I want to take things in small steps. And there are good reasons to do that. And I'm not under time pressure because this compound is not patented. <laughs> normally, you, it's not patentable, right? Normally, you have this kind of like you know time time limit. The patent will expire in a certain amount of time. So there's a lot of pressure to just go, 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 go. And you know, of course, that also leads to sloppy science. Or your government grant is expiring, right. and you've got to renew it or whatever, right? Exactly. And so I feel like I can be a little bit more relaxed. And maybe this goes back towards some of the stuff about Dan Goldman, right? and how that affects my approach. And so the next goal that needs to be achieved is an experiment called a xenograft experiment, which is basically answering the question, can we cure cancer in mice? That's the next step. We've shown that it can kill cancer in petri dishes. Can we kill cancer in something that's actually alive? After that does require sort of like a higher level of capital expenditure because you have to start doing good manufacturing practices, which can't be done on a small budget. But I think that getting excitement about the compound by showing that it can actually work in something alive is a big step. The thing I find interesting about your project is that 
you're doing these xenograft experiments, which basically means you got mice that have cancer, and you're going to try to give them this drug and see if it cures their cancer and see what else it does to them besides affecting the cancer, if it does. Those studies are not cheap, but your fundraising goal was super low. Like it was about $50,000, which you achieved. You actually got even a little bit more than that. To me, seeing that you were able to do the kind of research that you're planning to do on such a small budget, that goes fast in an academic lab. First of all, you've got a third of the grant going to overhead for the university and then you've got, right. you know, you've got to pay people's salaries. You've got to pay for all this equipment. It's super expensive. Um, you've got to maintain an animal facility, and there's all these regulations you got to follow. And One of the biggest cost savings is that I'm not paying myself for it. <laughs> so I'm not going to do any of the animal studies uh, myself. So basically all I have to do is to make more of the compound and characterize it and make sure that I've actually made what I say I'd made. Um, these, these are all things that I've done myself in the past. So you're not going to do any of the animal studies yourself. You're going to just synthesize the compound and then outsource the animal studies somewhere else? So there are now organizations called CROs, contract research organizations, that will do that for you. They've got, kind of got a, a centralized system for doing experiments like xenografts. They have all of their talent in one place, so it's consolidated and so it's less expensive. It's also more humane because the people who are doing this know what they're doing. You know, I don't have to mess around trying to figure out how to, how to test things in mice. So that sort of the collateral damage to mice is reduced. They've got the most up-to-date techniques for doing this, which allow you to measure the cancer non-invasively. In the past, what you would have to do is you would have to, you know, decide, okay, we're going we're gonna to measure the cancer at five days, 10 days, 40 days, two months or something. And at each of those time points, you would have to resect the cancer, weigh it out on a balance, and then just sacrifice the mouse that you've extracted the cancer from. Now you just put the mouse on the scanner, and it scans the cancer, and then you put the mouse back into the cage. You don't have to kill as many mice, quite frankly. That's a great improvement. You found someone you can outsource that kind of research to who's a real expert who can do it in the best way possible. Right. So you can just cut out all the unnecessary stuff and get to the heart of answering the scientific questions. That's really cool. Exactly. So it's less expensive. It's more humane. So my part is just the chemistry. That's how I'm able to make it so inexpensive. How did you find people to back this project? You know, especially in an environment where a lot of people think, well, you know, the government funds science. I don't really have to give to private campaigns. Like, how did you reach out to people about it and get the word out? Yeah, um, that was tricky. I had actually tried once before last December and mm-hmm. didn't get a whole lot of traction. We did actually get about $15,000 in pledges. So I already I started with kind of a, a base of people who I, I, I knew were already going to were already interested in the project. And we reached out to Bitcoin with um, I think it was Coindesk ran a story on us. And that was that that brought a lot of Bitcoin donations, but also as a collateral sort of secondary network, people would share it and then draw in people who are not necessarily Bitcoin supporters. We also got coverage on news aggregator sites. And what I learned was really interesting about how to sort of do, I guess it's called growth marketing, 
we managed to get a posting on Reddit, which wound up getting run by a local media source, which then got reposted to Reddit and then got picked up by a bigger media source. And then, you know, that wound up in, what did we wind up in? We wound up in um, Wired. Uh, and mm-hmm. then from Wired, it was a few weeks, and then we wound up on TechCrunch. It's kind of this interesting system where, you know, you get attention and that draws more attention into, into you. And then you get, you get kind of a, a bigger, uh, sort of like a voice, uh, a message magnification. Yeah, for sure. And it's really interesting how you put the message out there. I'm looking at your website. It's pledge.indesci.org. The campaign is over, but just to have some data on it, scientists love data. Uh, <laughs> you've got this header here liberate pharmaceuticals, join our social experiment to show that drugs can be made without patents. The cost of anti-cancer drugs is too high. Our movement is working to solve this problem. And you had 435 people donate. You got $58,000 about in fiats, and you got about 11.8 bitcoins, which is another about $4,300 worth of fiats. Right. So that's a lot of donors, and you and you met your goal. You exceeded your goal, right? So actually, including p- uh, people who donated bitcoins, the number of donors I got exceeds five hundred. So, uh, mm. so I'm really, I'm really. That's actually the thing that I'm most proud about. That we got people to say, "Hey, you know, this is something I'm interested in supporting with mm-hmm. with money." Um, the number of people who've shown support and who've like shared and you know got interested in other ways is also obviously even higher. The word is out there. I am taking my time, but I'm also excited about it. Are you still accepting donations after the campaign has ended, or are you done with that and you're going to be moving on to the research now? And I'm kind of informally accepting donations. A handful of people have come to me like, I really, really want to give money. So I'm like, okay, well, so if you want to, we have a PayPal account. I'll probably hook that up like a little bit more visibly in the next week or so. And actually, the Bitcoin link still works because I, I, I haven't bothered to disconnect that. So if okay. I want to donate to Bitcoins, that's still, still a possibility. So next step is doing the research. So tell me where you're going to go from here. Like, what results are you anticipating? Uh, what are you going to do to basically publish the results that you get? Let people know who funded you, like how it came out. More importantly, if it ends up working out and this drug shows promise in the mice, where do you go from there with an open source drug? Like, how do you find somebody to pick it up and run with it when they don't have this whole patent incentive? Are you going to have to start a company (laughs) at that point? Right. That is a good question. So there are a couple of avenues that I'm thinking about. Okay, so the ideal situation is that some company just says, oh, we'd love to take this and turn it into a drug. Um, and basically fronts the research money to keep going. The way I see it is that once it goes into clinicals, that's where it should be taken by a for-profit. I mean, there's no good reason for that. It's just a, a silly like line that I've drawn in my, in my head. Although, well, because they're going to have to pay a lot for these clinical trials. Right. And you know, they have the equ- experience to do it. It's hard to set up clinical trials, right? You've got to have a lot in place, and you need to have a professional who's done that before, perhaps. And the ones who've done it before are the ones who are for-profit companies who kind of know what they're doing with that, right? Right. And I think there are a handful of drugs that have made it through that have been basically fronted by nonprofit entities. Often orphan drugs, right? Yeah, often orphan drugs, especially if for some reason or another, the FDA has decided that the regulatory barriers should be lower. Which is so arbitrary. Like, why shouldn't the regulatory barriers for be lower for all drugs, right? Right. 
There's a study that I saw once that compared basically the people who die every year because they can't get access to experimental treatments. It's greater than the number of people who die as a result of taking FDA-approved drugs that turned out to not be safe. So there are lots of people who think that the FDA is really not striking the right balance between allowing experimental treatments to flourish and also trying to ensure that the drugs that are out there are safe. Yeah. And of course, there are huge filing fees, like part of the cost of getting a new drug out there is these gigantic filing fees, millions of dollars. And that can be a real burden that makes the difference between some drugs getting out there and some not. And it also incentivizes drugs that not cures for diseases, but a drug that you'll have to take for the rest of your life chronically to manage your disease instead of cure it, because that gives the pharma company the most profits and that's how they make, make back their money, right? Right. So it's like it incentivizes lipid-lowering drugs, like cholesterol drugs. Oh, and also diseases that a lot of people have. So like the orphan diseases get ignored. Diseases that lots of people have and that there's a big profit opportunity for have a lot of research poured into them. So again, it's, it's all about incentives. And then we end up with Viagra and Lipitor. People who have rare genetic diseases don't get so lucky. Well, I mean, I mean, it gets real. So yeah, so the lifestyle drugs are hugely incentivized. But the really kind of sketchy ones, I mean, I, don't, I shouldn't say sketchy because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, an improvement in, in the quality of life. No, no, no doubt about it. But like Gleevec is a drug for um, childhood leukemia. It doesn't cure the disease. And it gives you maybe about 10 years, which is amazing, right? And it's just a pill. Technically speaking, it's called chemotherapy, but like it's, it doesn't have the side effects that you would normally associate with chemotherapy. So it's a huge, huge improvement in quality of life. You get 10 years, but you have to take this pill on a regular basis. So, you're, so your life is on loan to, I think Novartis makes Gleevec. That was discovered a while ago. The reason it doesn't have side effects is because it inhibits a specific protein that's created when there's a certain mutation that causes this cancer. And it inhibits the specific protein that is created in this cancer and not any of the normal body proteins. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a amazing research toward a force and a brilliant, brilliantly conceived idea. And yet it kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, like I said, it's hard to complain too much about it because it's certainly an improvement in the quality of life and there isn't, you know, a cure, an outright cure for it that's quite as clear cut and clear cut. All these drugs are huge technological advances and they do improve people's quality of life, no doubt about it. And I'm glad that we have them. On the same token, I can also see where people are coming from when they complain about the medical system because it really seems like it's kind of stacked or designed in a way to keep people on drugs to manage chronic conditions instead of actually curing them. Like we don't have that many antibiotics and there's not much research done on new antibiotics because it's way more profitable or it makes way more sense for the pharma companies to create these chronic disease managing drugs that target diseases that are very common. Right. Um, and, you know, again, it's also partially because you can get numbers on those diseases, which gives you better statistical confidence and makes FDA clearance easier as well. It's a tricky system to work in. In any case, returning back to what we we're chatting about. So next steps. My nonprofit actually is not capable of running clinical trials. 
when you apply for nonprofit status, that is actually one of the questions that specifically the IRS is interested in. Are you going to be doing clinical trials? And I said no, because I'm, because mm-hmm. <laughs> A, it's easier to set it up that way. And B, because like I said, I had this idea that at that point it should be taken over by a for-profit. Um, mm-hmm. I could see like a generics manufacturer getting interested in developing, developing this because that is something that they do. They run they will run clinical trials on non-patented drugs or drugs that have just run off, gone off of patent. Although this is a little bit more experimental and a little bit more risky for them. A third possibility that is kind of something that might happen is to try it as a veterinary drug and basically validate that it works by trying to cure pets. Is it specifically targeted towards a specific type of cancer or is it more of a general? It is, it's a general cancer drug. The way that it works is it basically jams up the DNA. Mm. And it may have secondary modes of operation as well that we're beginning to learn about. So we didn't know what sort of cancer it would cure when we threw it at the screen. And it looks like it's best against melanoma, renal cancer, and triple negative breast cancer. Also, some types of leukemia and I think non-small cell lung cancer might be another one. I don't remember. So the reason why um, I'm... Less focused on those is because there isn't a good mouse xenograft model for those for those two cancers. Um, mm, but melanoma, for sure. For sure, um, and triple negative breast cancer, for sure, and and renal cancer are, are are easily done on xenografts. And there's also demand for those treatments for those cancers. Not uncommon types of cancer, for sure. And the, I mean, the interesting thing is that once you get it approved for something, it's less difficult for, um, you can't advertise to do this, but an oncologist could, in theory, look at the, you know, research that's done on it and say, oh, hey, you know, we might be able to use this for another type of cancer and start prescribing it, quote, off-label. I can't advocate for that practice, though, because I could get in trouble. (laughs) Right. But it is certainly done. I mean, uh, once a drug is shown to have a certain safety profile and so forth, Physicians have basically discretion to prescribe it for things that it's not specifically approved for, but uh, there is evidence that it could be helpful for. And I think that over the next decade or so, I mean, it's already happening, but we're going to start transitioning away from this. You know, you have a cancer for a certain organ model of thinking to a kind of a more analytical system where we really study the individual's cancer and tailor a treatment you know, it's called personalized medicine, but, but to yeah. tailor a treatment for that person's cancer, specifically, I actually think that sort of an open source approach to drug development will actually help that even more as well. What is the genetic problem with this cancer? Like, what exactly went wrong in this cell that caused it to become cancer? And what can we do to address that specific problem and uh, get rid of that person's cancer? Personalized medicine, you know, means genetic testing, and it means having an understanding of these molecular defects that cause certain problems. I think you're right. If there are open source tools available to essentially hack specific types of tumors and cure them specifically, that'll just encourage um, the development of ways to find out if that specific hack would work for your tumor, right? Right. And so I've got a friend who is starting a company to attack uh, a certain type of brain cancer, which is normally very difficult to treat using standard chemotherapy. But he thinks that the reason why that's the case is not because the chemotherapies don't work, but because it's a difficult to, quote, categorize cancer 
if you just take that cancer and just test to see what which of the 50 or 60 known cancer drugs is best at attacking it, you can have a better shot, you know, instead of saying, oh, this is, is categorized as this type of cancer because of where it is in the body, actually just hit it with everything and get evidence that drug X will work instead of supposing that drug X will work because of possibly arbitrary categorization. You know, it reminds me of this story that I heard about a guy, he had melanoma and it was metastatic. So it was spreading through his body. And that's a really bad sign. Like he was really concerned. There were some drug treatments available for the type of melanoma that he had. But what he found was that there were drug trials that had been done in the past that showed that there was like a specific drug that worked really well on like 10% of the people in the trial, but on the other 90%, it didn't work. And so the drug didn't get approved. Right. Or it didn't get past the FDA. But it turned out that he was one of those 10% responders and he tried this drug and it worked really well for him. And so he created some kind of a database that you can kind of search through and find potentially drugs like that where they may have worked for 10 or 20% of the people in a trial, but because they didn't work for everybody in the trial, they didn't quite make it past and get approved for that specific thing. So yeah, I mean, I think we're just going to see more and more of that happening. But if at all, how do you see the system of the way that clinical trials are conducted changing or the approval process changing as we go forward in the future of personalized medicine? Right. So that I I have no idea. And I think that I think that the FDA is going to be changing things a little bit. And that's the only way it's going to happen. I mean, there's a lot of industry pressure to well, I wouldn't say at the at the high level, I don't think the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, they want to do this, but they they're they're still stuck, I think. I mean, I I mean, my my feeling is that they're kind of still stuck. There haven't been too many like drugs that have been developed for that sort of thing, a concept. Mm-hmm. And even so, they're still kind of very oddly protracted um, situations. We see a lot of like drugs now that are, are approaching us in kind of a, a well, I'll, I'll say awkward and politically tricky way, which is like, um, which are drugs that are targeted towards certain races. So you have drugs that are like, well, this drug oh, will yeah. work for African-Americans, this drug will work for um, Asian-Americans, the flip side of that is there are drugs that don't work in certain races, and this is actually something I have personal um, personal experience with my father. We should look at and say, hey, wait, maybe you shouldn't prescribe this for my dad, for example, right? Race is a social construct, but it's also like a very crude way to sort of assess different groups of genetics, like different groups of genes that a person might have. Which are and real, so, right? So, yeah, so, which are real, yes. So, you know, we're maybe transitioning from one crude way of assigning arbitrary fences around different types of cancer, for example, to like, you know, okay, now we have different types of people that will respond to certain drugs. And, you know, ultimately, you know, there'll be like kind of a more analytical approach. Okay, so this is what a person's gene structure looks like. And, you know, whether or not you're outwardly African-American, if you have this gene, then maybe like, you know, this drug. Maybe we can just test for the gene. Right. Yeah, because the, you never the, the example. So I mean, there are, you know, people who wouldn't, you might not think we're African-American, but have Thomas Jefferson has a, has a Y haplotype that comes from, from like Ethiopia, right? So maybe the example you're referring to, which I would love to talk about on the show, is this drug called Bidil. Okay, this was like the prototypical uh, example of this 
issue coming to fore in medicine, where like in 2005 or 2006, which was the time that I was actually going to medical school, there was a trial that was done with this drug, and it's for heart failure. It's a drug for heart failure. And what they noticed in the trial was that basically it works on black people, but not really well on white people. Mm -hmm. And why is that? As far as I know, the specific genes that are responsible for that have not been found. I think the drug was actually approved, but only for African Americans. But then that opens up a can of worms, because what does that mean, African American, right? Do you have to define yourself as black? If you're from Haiti, are you African American? If you're Jamaican, are you African American? Or is it just if you're African American, whatever that means? So there was like a real murky area around this. And, and then, of course, you have people who, who are like, oh, I see how it is. They're giving a drug only to black people. Hmm, I'm a little skeptical of this, right? And I wouldn't blame them for being skeptical because given the history of how black people have been treated in America, especially when you think about like the Tuskegee, Tuskegee experiments. experiments. Yeah, exactly. It makes sense to be skeptical. Yeah, Tuskegee experiments were like there's a, a bunch of black men in prison and they were deliberately infected with infections like syphilis and gonorrhea, I think. They let them go untreated just to see what happened to them. Right. It was a horrible example of the most unethical type of human research with, which used people, but they were just so dehumanized in that process. And it's such a wrong that, that happened in the past. It seems so pointless. But yeah, that legacy is still there. And I, I really don't blame people for saying, well, what the hell is this? A drug that's only for black people? Or come on, you're telling me I've seen this movie before, right? right. And so if we could just remove the racial aspect from it and isolate specific genes that, okay, it's not about race. It's if you have this gene, you are uh, likely to respond to this drug. And if you don't have the gene, then this drug probably isn't going to work for you. So I hope that's where we're going. <laughs> Right, but right. we're not quite there yet. <laughs> no, yeah. And the question is, how will the FDA approach this? And I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. uh, there, so um, there, there, there's a lot of sort of research at kind of the still the academic slash basic level on trying to approach this. For example, one of the bioinformatics contests that I tried out just to play around with, you know, my programming skills was to try and see if you could find genetic predictors of response to rheumatoid arthritis drugs. So, you know, I think there's interest in, in, in getting that kicking down the pipeline in the next five or 10 yeah. years. And we'll see, I mean, eventually, you know, academics who are working on this will find their way into pharmaceutical companies and be in charge of projects to really or, uh, start pushing for those sorts of projects. And then pressure will come to the FDA to figure out how to regulate these things. Yeah, what were the results from that project, genetic variants that predicted response to rheumatoid arthritis drugs? I don't remember off the top of my head. I couldn't do it. Uh, I couldn't improve off of what was already known in the literature. That was because I had committed myself to a, an approach that I, I realized now, in retrospect, was not the right approach to algorithmically to take. But, you know, that, that's why you do these contests, because everybody will try their own little spin on, on it and, and, you know... Most of them will be wrong, but hopefully one of them will be right. It was actually not that great. They wound up getting a 60 to 70% confidence improvement or something. It wasn't spectacular. Sometimes you don't get those spectacular smoking gun type of results, but it's still moving science forward, and that's kind of what it's about, right? Exactly. 
Cool. Okay, so I want to ask you one last question, and thank you so much for spending time with me and discussing this, because this has been really interesting to me so far. It's been my pleasure. What about blockchain technologies? Do you see any applications for like the technology of the blockchain or Bitcoin or other types of Bitcoin-like technology for science, for medicine, research? I mean, just get crazy and tell me your visions for the future related to Bitcoin and and blockchain technology and science. One of the possibly interesting things, it's not directly blockchain technology, but sort of the idea of hashing something, which is important in blockchain technology. And maybe, maybe, maybe it would be useful for it to be distributed as well, is in sort of like scientific predictions. So mm-hmm. this is something that I'd like to see, and I've, I've thought about maybe implementing this myself. But to have like a service where you can write down a prediction, you don't necessarily have to disclose it publicly. So maybe you write down a prediction and you just want to later on say, hey, I made this prediction back in blah, 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 like October of 2013. And nobody's going to believe you if you just, so let's say it comes <laughs> true, right? Nobody's going to believe you if you just like, hey, I said, hey, that. I said that, right? Here, here's a piece <laughs> of paper. But if you could have some sort of way of taking that prediction and hashing it, well, there is a way to do it. You take the prediction, you hash it, uh, and, and, <laughs> right. and you timestamp it. That could be kind of like an interesting application of blockchain technology. Okay, like, you know, I'm making this prediction. Will it come true? And then you say, okay, look, you know, I, I made this prediction. How do I prove that I did? Well, if you take this text file, which contains the contents of my prediction, uh, and you hash it, you get this unique value, which, you know, you wouldn't have been able to reverse engineer in any other way. And that exists on the blockchain two years ago. Therefore, I must have made that prediction correctly. Um, Yeah, and that's exactly how Bitcoin mining works, of course. I love that uh, concept, being able to timestamp and prove that certain documents existed or certain things were said at certain times, because you can, you can, you can hash anything from one letter to one word to a, a book, <laughs> basically. Now the, and the, now, the tricky thing, of course, is that, you know, you could hash both the positive and the negative prediction and then put both them on blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's true, that's true. <laughs> I think there could be applications even for, you know, I heard of this this thing called like a common law patent. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's basically like in the days of yore, there were some people who would basically write a letter describing the contents of their patent or what they wanted to patent or describe and mailing it to themselves with a postmark on it. And then at a later date, if they wanted to prove that they had that idea at a certain time, they would just say, well, I, here it is. I, here's the letter I sent myself. It's been, it's been timestamped with the postmark and here's what's in the contents. Doing that on the blockchain is sort of a modern way of doing a common law patent, essentially. And I don't know what it could be used for, because the whole kind of basis of patents is that the government enforces your intellectual property. So there's no one, obviously, to enforce it. But it could be just a great way to prove that you had a certain thought or idea at a certain time in history. It doesn't necessarily have to be a patent. It could just be for, you know, social validation of, hey, like, you know, an attribution, Mm -hmm. right? Like, hey, I had this idea... You know, this person who's claiming to have had the idea before me is is just being a charlatan. Um, <laughs> I think that's important, right? I mean, we don't necessarily have to make it illegal to 
copy somebody without, you know, it's kind of like, you can still be a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. In some cases, that's more of an incentive. Uh, It's the the greater incentive is not to be a jerk rather than to run afoul of some law, because you can always hire lawyers and, you know, try to defend yourself from that, right? Right, right. The other thing that I, I mean, this is very topical this week is that the, is the whole net neutrality thing. Like what, what I think would be interesting is for the blockchain to be used, a blockchain to be used to like assign value to passing packets along the internet. Mm-hmm. I'm not the only person who, who, who's thinking about this. Part of the problem with sort of this net neutrality debate is that it's hard to measure the value of providing the pipe that somebody is, I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it, there's a non-zero cost associated with it. And, and I think one of the problematic things about the net, neutra- net neutrality debate is that there's no cost to this. Well, it's very cheap, but it's not, it's not zero. And so, you know, being able to create some sort of validated way of assigning value to that would be, would be, really, would be really useful, I think. Hmm, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I wonder, is that kind of similar to what MateSafe is planning to do, where they're essentially distributing computing resources so that you could get paid for contributing some of your bandwidth or something like that? I've heard of MadeSafe, but I'm not 100% familiar with what they're doing. But I would see it most useful, for example, in the context of like a mesh network. But the only thing that I would worry is that sort of the overhead of providing, of doing this sort of analysis on every packet that gets pushed through might not be worth it. What we have right now is a bunch of centralized ISPs who kind of often work with like local governments to get monopolies over certain territory. Exactly. Uh, is that better than the cost of decentralization? I don't know. I mean, we should find out. <laughs> right, right. I wouldn't personally know how to implement that, but it, it, I think that may be a use for the blockchain in the future. Cool. Well, Isaac, this has been such a cool conversation. If you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you if they want to, um, or where they can sort of follow your updates as you progress through this project, I think people would be really interested in that. I will be semi-regularly updating things it might take a while because I'm not planning on doing experiments until January, February, but I'm on Twitter at, at Dianautics, D-N-A-U-T-I-C-S. It's, it's a non-official for my nonprofit. Eventually, I'll start updating the blog at blog, B-L-O-G dot My nonprofit's website is IndieSci, that's I-N-D-Y-S-C-I dot O-R-G. Actually, the best way is to follow the Project Maryland um, Facebook page. So that's Project, and Maryland is spelled M-A-R-I-L-Y-N. Dr. Isaac Yonemoto, thank you so much for being with me today. It was really a pleasure to talk with you, and good luck with uh, Satoshi Mycin. I hope it cures a lot of cancer. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to Episode 174 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Stephanie Murphy and Isaac Yonemoto. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. We'll see you in 2015.